This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. In that life that he lived, he never had a wrong thought or word or deed. He perfectly kept God's law. He who was the law giver was the law keeper. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined by my friend James Dalzell. James, how are you today? I'm well, thanks. We are discussing a very important doctrine on today's episode, the active obedience of Christ. But we're going to do this uh, by way of first looking at the biblical text and then looking a little bit at the history of it. We have as our guest today, Dr. Alan Strange, who has written a book entitled Imputation of the Active Obedience of Christ in the Westminster Standards. It's a historical treatment of the doctrine of active obedience, but we want to begin just by talking about active obedience in general. So, Dr. Strange, thank you for joining us today. It's good to be with you, brothers. Very good to be with you. A wonderful thing to talk about uh, because, you know, I was reared <laughs> as a uh, as an evangelical and came to embrace Reformed soteriology, but was still uh, not covenantal, not Reformed uh, in the fullest sense. And I always heard when I was younger that the great thing that Jesus did for us, and it's true, I, we all affirm it, was that he died on the cross for our sins. And of course, he did die on the cross for our sins. And the more is really wonderful news. Why anybody wouldn't want to affirm it is beyond me. But, uh, well, it isn't beyond me. I understand the reasons that people don't want to affirm active obedience in certain cases. But the great news is that not only did Jesus die on the cross for our sins, which is to say he paid the penalty of sin. Think of it this way. Adam sinned. We've sinned. We owe a vast debt to God. Let's say we owe a million dollars. And it's like Jesus comes and dying on the cross for our sin is paying that million dollar debt. But of course, that means that in the bank, rather than owing a million, we just have zero to our account. We don't owe. That's been paid. But what Jesus did was not only die on the cross for our sins, but he kept the whole law for us throughout the course of his life. So not only was his death substitutionary, that is, he died in our place, as the hymn says, in my place condemned he stood right? That takes care of the debt. But his life was also substitutionary. His life was for us. And in that life that he lived, he never had a wrong thought or word or deed. He perfectly kept God's law. He who was the law giver was the law keeper for us. Sometimes we hear that justification means simply just as if I had never sinned. But are you saying that on the basis of Christ's active obedience imputed to us that we should say more than that? Right. Just as if I had never sinned means that the penalty has been taken care of. I'm in the clear. But we need to say that justification means rightly understood to use the language of Luther, 
that not only did Christ take our sin, but in the glorious exchange, he has given us his righteousness, this righteousness that he has achieved through perfect law keeping on our behalf, so that justification isn't just as if I had never sinned. Justification means that God declares it's an act, a forensic, a legal act. When we trust Christ, there's this imputation that occurs that you mentioned, and this is accounted to us. And so it's as if the judge in the courtroom, think of it this way, says not only to us, not guilty, you're not guilty of sin, but far more than that, you have kept this whole law. You have totally and perfectly obeyed God. Imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account so that we have a positive record of obedience, not merely a negative taking away of the certificate of debt. Um, You've referred now several times to this as Christ's keeping of the law. Uh, How would we respond to those that would say that what's imputed to us is the divine righteousness of Christ? Paul says in Philippians 3 that he has a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Why is why is it that the why is it the righteousness of Christ obedience to the law as a man as opposed to simply his natural essential righteousness as divine? What you know, you know what I mean by that distinction? Then why why yes. do we say it's why do we say it's his obedience as a man as opposed to simply his uprightness as God? Because Christ came, of course, didn't he, as the God Man. And it's particularly with reference to his humanity, to his human nature, you might say, that he is second Adam. He is the last Adam, the Mm -hmm. second man. And he comes to undo what Adam did not do. He comes to undo what Adam did, rather, and he comes to do what Adam failed to do. So Adam was under the covenant of works obliged to keep the law. Adam didn't do that. And of course, Jesus came to pay for the penalty of his not doing it, right? Right. But also to positively keep the law on our behalf. And that needs to be done with respect to our human nature. He needs as a man to do for us what Adam didn't do. So that in our human nature, you think of uh, Hebrews 2 that talks about he was a flesh and blood with us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers because he is our brother. And so he came and he suffered for us. He died for us. And, of course, it's also wonderfully put in Westminster Larger Catechism. It talks about why was it necessary, why was it requisite that Jesus be God, man, and God and man in one person? And in answer to the question of why must Jesus be a man, there's a particular focus on the fact that he must be, as coming in doing what Adam didn't do, he must, in our place as man, keep this law. I want to get to Westminster in just a second, because obviously that's the focus of your your book. But 
in the book, you also mention uh, among the many implications of this doctrine, the fact that now we have real acceptance with God. And, and in fact, you frame this in contrast to the, the lack of acceptance we have in the world. Uh, and, and you talk about our souls being thirsty for this kind of acceptance. So what's the, what's the relationship between the act of obedience of Christ uh, imputed to us as sinners and, and our acceptance with, with a holy and righteous God? Oh, that's so important. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what we see about us in the world today? people looking for love in all the wrong places. Yeah, right? I think you put your finger yeah. on it. This is what every man created, every man and woman created in the image of God in their deepest souls thirst for, as, as Augustine said, we are restless until we find our rest and take our rest in him. And we can know in him the acceptance that we were made for, that we long for, one way also to, to get at this is not only does he declare us to be, as you've, as we've said here, not guilty of sin, he declares us to be righteous as is Christ righteous. He, he declares us to be wearing that righteousness of Christ. But think of it this way, too. Let's go back to the courtroom for a minute. Not only does the judge say not guilty, and not only does the judge say, in fact, you've kept the whole law because all that Jesus did is accredited or imputed or put to your account. But the judge then says, furthermore, you are my child. I declare you not only to be righteous, I declare you to be my son or daughter. I adopt you. And so this goes together with, now in the continental tradition, they almost, they often treat adoption as, as if the, the opposite side of the coin of justification. And it occurs at the same time of justification. Westminster has a nice little separate chapter treating uh, adoption, because adoption is so important, and it's so important to the question you're raising here of acceptance, because yes, the basis of justification, it's a legal basis, it's what Christ did for us, so is adoption a legal basis, but obviously, adoption has a very personal aspect to it. We're declared to be a son, and a lot of people these days they don't like justification because they just see it as very legal. And they say, we don't just have this legal relationship with God. No, we have a legal relationship at the basis of our relationship with God so that we are as holy as Jesus is holy by imputation. But we also have this legal declaration that we're sons and daughters of God. And that is a very intimate, a very personal a very joyful reality. We're his children. We are accepted. And we know how it is with our own children. They can do this or that, and we may express to them, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you're in trouble. But we never don't regard them as our children. In fact, the reason that we wish to correct them when they do wrong is because we want the best for them. And that's the way it is with God. He corrects us 
He does discipline us, but it's all for our good and his glory. With respect to your book, you are making the argument historically that this is what we've been talking about here is the position of the Westminster divines and is the um, intended understanding of the Westminster standards. Maybe you could say something briefly. We don't want to, uh, we don't want to steal the thunder of your book and we recommend it to our listeners. Um, something about the historic objections to this. And I, I was thinking of one person in particular and not to get um, lost in biography, but um, Johannes Piscator and his objection to this. What is the, if you could just briefly summarize, what, what are the historic objections to what we've been saying? Um, and maybe we could say it that way because we've heard the arguments in favor of, um, but what, right. why would anyone object? I think you started our conversation that way. So I'll put it back to you. Why yeah. in the world would anyone object to this? Why, what's wrong in their minds with what's being said? Well, I appreciate that question. It's a very important one, obviously. In the book, uh, I am leading up to the Westminster Standards. And in doing that, I talk about uh, the shape of this doctrine, although it wasn't specifically referred to, right, as the active obedience of Christ or sure. the imputation of the active obedience in the ancient and medieval church and the Reformation church before Westminster. One of the great uh, critics, as you say, was Johannes Piscator. And here's really the situation. I think what you have in the Reformation, and I think this is reflected, for example, in the Heidelberg Catechism, say question 60, especially, and in the Belgic Confession, I think this is reflected, what we've been talking about, the active obedience of Christ. It's really when Piscator, though, says, no, no, Christ died on the cross for our sins. He didn't obey the whole law for us. It's then that that kicks into the discussion. As you know, I mean, it's often a doctrine is assumed or is being believed by a church when someone who is a heretic or is in error says, no, 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 this isn't the case. It's sort of like Arius, you know, right. saying, no, Jesus isn't of the same substance. Now we have to clarify our position more explicitly. That's right. Because That's right. Error. So the church had to do that. So let me, let me, you ask about Piscator, and let me just say this about him. Why would why would Piscator have a problem with this beautiful thing we've been talking about, right? Active obedience. It's a great gift. This is this is that time of year where we think about gift giving, and Jesus has given us the great gift of his obedience and his death for our sin. So um, there is a fellow who has written a book just on Piscator, also published by RHB, uh, not long before this. Uh, and in, in talking about this, he, he hones in, he says, for, for him, that is Piscator, uh, and I'm quoting this from page 47, Scripture never indicated Christ's life of obedience to the law being imputed. He believed that the imputation of Christ's active obedience raised contradictions within theology. For one thing, he said, Christ, if Christ's life makes one righteous, then there's no need for the cross. Well, of course, I would say he's not understanding the need. That only pays the penalty. So he's not understanding that. If Christ's obedient makes us right with the law, then God's punishment to satisfy the law is an unjust requirement of a double payment. Well, no, God requires that the law be kept as well as the penalty paid. What, let me just give another quick little illustration because I've had people say this a lot. I've heard this objection a lot and I've developed a number of things. And 
and try this one. Don't pay all your taxes. I'm not saying don't do that. But if you don't pay all your taxes, the IRS is going to come back to you and they're going to say, you owe us interest and penalty on this and you owe us this tax. Well, if you just pay the interest and penalty, that's paying the debt. That's like what Jesus did dying on the cross. He paid the debt of our sin. So try paying the interest and penalty to the IRS and saying, well, I'm not actually now going to pay what I owe because I paid the interest and penalty. Doesn't that take care of it? And the IRS will say, no, you have to pay the whole thing. It's like you tell your child to clean up their room and they don't and you discipline them. And then you say, now clean up the room. You still have to render that obedience. But here's the last consideration here. Piscator said, if Christ obeyed in our behalf, then we're freed from the obligation to obey God's moral law. This shows you, I think, what he's really getting at. Mm -hmm. What Piscator is getting at is that in some way, our obedience, others in more recent years have talked about our faithfulness, that that somehow enters into the picture. Our law keeping enters into the picture in our justification. Our law keeping does not enter the picture at all, not a bit in our justification. We are justified, as Paul says, by faith in Christ, not by our law keeping, not by our keeping of the law, but by faith in Christ, by looking to him to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, dying for our sin and paying the penalty. And so here, Piscator wants to bring our obedience, our good works into view in our justification. But what's in view in our justification is the sole and entire work and the sufficiency of that work on behalf of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I like to say this to people. If what Jesus did in his living and dying for us, in his active and passive obedience, if that isn't enough to give us a right standing with God, to give us what you talked about earlier, that acceptance with God, that complete acceptance, if what Jesus did doesn't gain us that, we're going to do what? Our good works, our faithfulness, seriously? That's what you're relying on? If we have to rely on that, I'll just put it personally. If I have to rely on my faithfulness or my good works in the least in order to be accepted by a holy God who is of purer eyes than to look upon sin, then I will perish eternally. I will go to hell. The only way I go to heaven and have acceptance with a holy God is entirely because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now let me just say this. What about then? Don't we don't we as Christians want to follow after? Don't we want to obey, keep the law? What Calvin, John Calvin, called the third use of the law. Yes. And let me say this: the third use of the law means that we as Christians live our lives and seek to be, although very imperfectly, we seek to obey God not so that we may be justified or may be saved, but because we are saved. Our seeking to follow after is an expression of gratitude. Everything that we do is not so God will accept us. We're not 
it's not like God is a bully in the bar room in an old Western film and he draws his six shooters and starts shooting at us, making us dance. No, 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 no. We have a perfect acceptance with God so that it's the, it's the understanding of that and the realization of that and the joy of that that makes me want to live for him, that makes me want to honor him, that makes me want to glorify him. And that's the third use of the law. It's an expression of gratitude. I can't imagine a better note to end on than that. So, Dr. Strange, thanks so much for giving us your time today. Thank you for your your labors in writing this book, but also in in explaining so clearly this vital doctrine of the gospel. So, thanks for your time. It was great to be with you. Well, James, that was that was unexpected in the sense that, you know, the the little book that Dr. Strange has written is on the history of the imputation of active obedience and, and the understanding of that in the Westminster Standards, but but we got a chance to really get into the significance of it. And I think that was it was it was really powerful to hear him talk about even the significance in his own life. And I think just understanding that justification doesn't just dial the clock back to pre fall Adam. But the justification actually treats us as if we had run the course Adam should have run because the second Adam ran the course to completion. That it, it wasn't just simply innocence that we needed, but it was a positive record of faithfulness. And Jesus achieves that for us in his own obedience, even unto death on a cross. And I think that's, I asked Alan at the beginning of our interview, is there something more we need to say right. that Jesus died for your sins? And we do need to say that he also um, accomplished and earned for us the righteousness that gives us that unshakable standing of acceptance with God. We want to give our listeners a chance to, to win uh, his book, but also just a last uh, comment. When we were off the air talking to him, he uh, reminded us of a book that both you and I know and love. It's called Justification Vindicated by Robert Trails. Trails spelled T-R-A-I-L-L. It's a Banner of Truth book. We love recommending Banner of Truth books. An inexpensive one. It's an inexpensive one, a little paperback. And and his book will give you the history. Strange's book will give you the history. Trail's book will give you kind of the the big picture of justification, including, of course, the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. So uh, thank you for listening today to this episode. If you would like the chance to win uh, imputation of the active obedience of Christ in the Westminster Standards, Published by RHB, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a place for you to enter there to win that book. Uh, If you're able to donate, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. As always, we love hearing from you, and we're always happy when you pass along recommendations uh, for the podcast to us and recommend the podcast to others. So thanks, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.